I'm Kendra Kruger. And I'm Jane Palmer. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, the 13th of January. Coming up, we'll talk with University of Colorado professor Roger Pilkey and his new book, The Rightful Place of Science, Disasters and Climate Change. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Worried that you're going to end up with that cancer your grandfather had? Work published in the journal Science last week says that rolling the dice may be a better predictor. Scientists had figured out that with every cell division, there's a risk of cancer-causing mutation. Therefore, tissues that have more divisions are more vulnerable to cancer. This study focused on stem cells because they act like a protection line for new cells, meaning that a mutation in a stem cell is more likely to cause problems than a mutation in a cell that dies more quickly. Colon cancer, for example, is far more common than cancer of any other part of the intestine. There are about, there are about 10 to the 12 stem cell divisions in the colon over a lifetime, compared with 10 to the 10 in the duodenum, the top part of the small intestine. This explains the elevated risk for colon cancer. Although the randomness of cancer might be frightening, there is a positive side too. The new work stresses that the average cancer patient is just unlucky, Clever says. It helps cancer patients to know that the disease is not their fault. It turns out that Nessie, or the Loch Ness Monster, might have had some very sinister ancestors lurking around the coast of Scotland. Fossils found on the Isle of Skye have revealed a new giant prehistoric reptile prowled the Scottish seas around 170 million years ago. The new species, now called Jacques Crossy, may have looked similar to dolphins, but they measured as long as 14 feet from snout to tail, the size of a medium-sized motorboat. A team of Scottish paleontologists studies fossil fragments of the skulls, teeth, vertebrae and the upper arm bone unearthed on the island over the past 50 years. They identified several examples of extinct aquatic animals known as ichthyosaurs, which lived during the early to middle Jurassic, including the entirely new species. Jack Vara is Scottish Gaelic for marine lizard, and the species is one of the few to have ever been given a Gaelic name, paying homage to the history of Skye and the Hebrides. The fossil evidence suggests they lived in the warm, shallow seas around Scotland in the Jurassic period. Skye is one of the few places in the world where fossils from the Middle Jurassic period can be found, and the team say discoveries made there could provide valuable insights into how marine reptiles evolved. The study was published yesterday in the Scottish Journal of Geology. At the Boulder Café Scientifique tonight, the topic will be the link between shingles and cold sore viruses with stroke and headache, led by Dr. Maria Nagel, assistant professor in the Department of Neurology at the University of Colorado of Medicine. Dr. Nagel specializes in neurovirology, and in this cafe side, Dr. Nagel will discuss how the shingles virus can increase the risk of stroke, as well as heart attacks, and how the cold sore virus can cause headaches that are mistaken for difficult-to-treat chronic migraines. 
approximately 95% of Americans are infected with the virus that causes chickenpox and shingles, the varicella zoster virus, and 70% with the virus that causes cold sores, the herpes simplex virus. Dr. Nagel will describe clinical and basic research studies in her lab, as well as her clinical experience with these patients. That is the Cafe Sci Boulder tonight, January 13th, which will start with refreshments at 5.30 p.m., and the talk starts at 6. The presenters speak for 15 to 25 minutes, followed by questions and answers. It is held on the second floor of the West Flanders Brewing, 1125 Pearl Street in Boulder. Attendance is limited to 70, so please RSVP. More information at cafesciboulder.wordpress.com. Other science events this week. Check out a screening of What NASA Has Done For You at the Fisk Planetarium this Friday at 7 p.m. Info at fisk.colorado.edu. On Saturday, the Boulder Audubon Society will be hosting a workshop entitled Undaunted Gardens, Daunting Water Supplies. Touches on issues on, of how to be a conscientious gardener with finite resources and how to design a landscape with those topics in mind. It'll take place this Saturday, January the 17th, at the Impact Hub in Boulder, 1877 Broadway, from 9am to 1pm. For more information, go to boulderaudubon.org. the world certainly saw more than a few costly weather disasters. Flooding in India and Pakistan in September killed more than 600 people and resulted in economic losses of more than $18 billion. Super typhoon Ramasam, which hit the Philippines, China and Vietnam in July, caused more than 200 deaths and losses of $6.5 billion. Closer to home in August, rainfall and flooding in Detroit, Baltimore and Long Island damaged homes and cities, leading to economic losses of about $2 billion. At the same time, the United Nations Weather Agency states that 2014 was the warmest year on record. So the question is, is this climate warming and the cost of natural disasters related? In fact, is climate warming actually leading to more natural disasters worldwide? These are questions that Roger Pelkey Jr., an environmental sciences professor at the University of Colorado, addresses in his new book, the rightful place of science, disasters and climate change. He's here to talk with us today about his book and why he believes it's important to maintain scientific integrity while engaging in the climate debate. Welcome, Roger. Thank you. So first of all, can you give me a quick definition of what you mean by natural disasters in this context? I mean, you're not talking about earthquakes here, are you? That's right. Uh, what I talk about in the book is about weather disasters. Um, and it's important when we talk about the science of this topic to be very clear from the outset. Uh, humans are affecting the climate system. Uh, those effects could be very negative. Uh, in a previous book, I talked about measures to address that, such as a carbon tax and adaptation. Uh, but in this new book, I focus on a very narrow scientific question, uh, which I just think deserves to be taken 
on its own right uh, and not as a substitute for the political debate over carbon and carbon taxes. And that question is, uh, has climate change led to an increase in the cost of natural disasters? Right. But before we tackle that, and I mean, I guess what you're saying here is you are no climate denier, are you? No. I mean, you really are. It's safe to say. That's right. You do believe that climate warming does exist. But do you think it's actually leading to more disasters? Yeah. So the, the way that we address this question is, is to be very specific and precise. Disasters occur when you have a combination of an extreme physical weather event and an exposed society. And if you really want to understand what's going on, we have to take these issues phenomena by phenomena. So tropical cyclones, floods, tornadoes, drought. Uh, the good news is the scientific community uh, has uh, wonderful data worldwide. It's not always as good as you'd like, but th- we have enough data to be able to parse out uh, trends with respect to these phenomena and begin to compare uh, the incidence of extremes with uh, the ever-growing amount of property and people that live in vulnerable locations. Teasing that out is the core of the scientific question. Right. But first of all, so, I mean, you know, I think to establish that, we need to establish whether climate warming is leading to more disasters anyway as well, don't we? Yes, and, and I think it's uh, you take that up uh, phenomena by phenomena. So droughts? So droughts. So, so over uh, the past 25 years, there's a global organization called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It goes by the IPCC. Um, they have, uh, in the last few years, done several reports that have summarized scientific literature on extreme events. Um, and one report was focused on climate extremes. Fortunately, And if we start with drought, uh, what the IPCC finds is that uh, there are some trends in regions uh, around the world, but overall there is no uh, overall increase in the amount of drought worldwide. Really? So rising temperatures don't actually cause more drought? It's, again, it's complicated because drought is a combination of precipitation and temperature, and a rising average temperature, which there is evidence for more heat waves, globally, uh, but that does not necessarily lead directly in a linear fashion to more drought. Okay. And so what about rainfall? I mean, we've seen flooding, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah. So the best evidence for changing extremes is, as I mentioned, with respect to heat waves. The second best evidence is with respect to what scientists call extreme rainfall. Um, It's not as certain and it's not as widespread, but in some regions, the incidence of rain that falls in extreme patterns has increased. Um, We have to be careful, though, because when scientists talk about extreme rainfall, they often mean something very technical, such as a percentage threshold. When you and I are talking about extreme rainfall, we think about pictures of floods and downpours, um, and that's not necessarily the same thing that's meant by the scientific community. So are you saying that although there are some examples of extreme rainfall, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be seeing more flooding? That's exactly right. So if you want to understand trends in flooding, the best thing to look at is obviously data on floods, yeah. which is scientists call stream flow. It's the amount of water that's in, in river channels. And it turns out globally uh, there is not evidence for an increase in the incidence of extreme floods. And you might ask, well, how can we have more extreme rainfall in some places but not more floods? Um, and again, it's complicated, but imagine that it's, uh, it's autumn and you have uh, more rain. In Colorado, we don't get unless it was September <laughs> a year ago. We don't, usually don't get a lot of rain in, in the fall. So you could have a 20%, 30% increase in extreme rainfall during that period, and we probably wouldn't notice it. It wouldn't have societal impacts. So again, the, the caution is uh, to avoid making logical leaps um, without first looking at the data and the evidence. Okay. But can you make connections between specific events? So, I mean, did climate change cause 
the Boulder flooding last year. Yeah, and this is this is a source of a great confusion um, because a lot of times, um, and in my book, I talk about if you just Google did climate change cause, you'll find hundreds of thousands of of hits. Um, climate change refers to the change in the statistics of weather over time. Usually it's many decades, 30 years or more. So it really doesn't make a lot of sense to say, did climate change cause this event? With respect to the Colorado floods, um, fortunately, uh, we have over a century worth of records of flooding along the Front Range. Um, And what we can say in Boulder is that uh, we've actually been very lucky. Um, That was the first major flood uh, in in the Boulder area since the 1960s. And in fact, uh, if you go back a century, uh, Boulder saw floods about this size about every decade. So in fact, flooding in Boulder and the Front Range has not increased, um, uh, nor has extreme rainfall in this particular region. So there's really no basis for saying we're in a trend or a pattern towards more flooding in this region. Okay. In fact, statistically, we are due more floods than we've had. Well, yeah, who, who knows? I mean, the climate changes for a lot of reasons, and it's variable. Um, and the chances of a big flood next year are the same as they were last year. Um, okay. So it doesn't add up like that. Right. Yeah. Thankfully. Yeah. Um, so tropical cyclones, tornadoes. I mean, I hear so much about tropical cyclones being caused by climate change. Yeah, tropical cyclones, which in the Atlantic and here in the U.S. we call hurricanes, um, unfortunately um, were the subject of a movie poster from Al Gore with a hurricane coming out of a smokestack. Um, And the conventional wisdom, the popular uh, discourse around uh, hurricanes is that they have become more common. But if you look at the evidence and you look at the data, um, it's really surprising to a lot of people. Um, Over the last century in the United States, the number of storms uh, hitting the United States has gone down by 20%. And the strength of those storms has gone down by 20%. We're currently in the longest stretch um, on record Uh, with the United States not being hit by a major hurricane, Category 3 or stronger. Florida uh, is almost approaching 10 years without being hit by a hurricane. That's happened a few times before. But we are really in a fortunate period. Now, if you look globally at tropical cyclones, um, there's no evidence that tropical cyclones have become more common globally. And in fact, 2014 uh, was the, the second had the second fewest tropical cyclones to hit land of any year since 1970. So uh, tropical cyclones, we have very good evidence. And to date, so far, there's just no evidence to suggest that uh, they're leading to the rising cost of disasters. Okay, and this is all data from the IPCC, isn't it? Yeah, the IPCC doesn't actually produce data. It assembles and summarizes data collected by scientific agencies around the world. So, so what's in my book and what I'm reporting to you today um, is 100% consistent with uh, everything reported by the IPCC. Okay, so if we don't take it phenomena by phenomena, you look across the board, weather disasters are basically, we're not seeing them increasing due to climate change, but what about the costs associated with them? I mean, is climate change somehow exacerbating these costs? Yeah, so, I mean, this is the question that everybody wants to know about because it's really the human toll and the the economic cost um, is what matters to a lot of people um, from disasters. And if you take a look um, over the last decades, what you see is that the cost of disasters has steadily increased, um, dramatically so. Um, And the main reason for that, which uh, there's a very strong consensus, is uh, we have more people and more property in exposed locations. So one one of the consequences of becoming rich and developed in other parts of the world is that disasters, when they occur, are going to cost more. We have to be very careful not to confuse cost estimates with climatological data, though. Right. 
You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jane Palmer, and we're talking with Roger Pelkey Jr., a professor of environmental sciences at the University of Colorado, about his new book, The Rightful Place of Science, Disasters and Climate Change. So they have become more costly, um, but you say studying the relationship between their costs and climate in, and climate warming is very difficult. Can you explain why that is? Yeah, because we care about the, the human impact and people migrate, they move, we build condos and buildings and structures on the coast. Uh, we alter coastlines. Uh, sometimes we, we reclaim land that uh, used to be in the sea. Um, and so the, the factors which drive increasing costs are, are, are multiple and it's not just extremes. Um, it's very possible that you could have actually fewer extreme weather events, but costs would go up because we're putting more property in. When those disasters do occur, they just wind up costing so much more. Uh, and so that's the real challenge. Right. So you've done the studies. You've done the math. Um, do you think they are becoming more costly due to climate change? I don't think that there's any evidence at the, t- the present to suggest that uh, we can attribute any fraction of that cost to anything other than more people and more property. Okay. And why do you think it's so important to pinpoint what leads to these increasing costs? Yeah, causality... Um, is important because it's it's related to how we think about the policies in response. So if we care about the human toll and the, the cost of disasters, and we want to, 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 to mitigate that somehow going forward, then understanding, well, what's driving those costs? And if it turns out, and I think this is accurate, that it's, it's what we build, how we build, and where we build, then really our policy focus um, ought to be on the development patterns that we have. Now, on the other side, in the terms of the climate change debate, um, I think responding to climate change is important, and if people are out there suggesting that the cost of disasters is being driven by climate change and the evidence isn't there, what they're doing is creating a weak spot in their own argument. And it's very hard to invoke science, but then abuse it in the process. And do you think that will come back eventually and bite people in the butt? I think it already has. I, I think that, that if you look at the uh, Gallup polls in the United States, for instance, over really the last uh, better part of the last decade um, across the political spectrum, uh, increasing numbers of people think that the science of climate change has been exaggerated to some extent. And I don't think that helps uh, advocating for for proper action. Right. So part of your book title is The Rightful Place of Science. And it hints at what your motives were for writing this book. Can you just outline what your motives were? Yeah, the book is... um, is part of a series that Arizona State University is doing. And so the series is titled The Rightful Place of Science. And the idea, um, I believe, of the series editor is to um, tackle questions that may be challenging, controversial, um, or otherwise difficult to engage in. Um, that's usually science in a political context, um, to lay out the evidence, but also to, to talk about, well, what does this evidence mean for how we should think about this issue and how we should think about science in political debates? Right. You know, in 2013, Al Gore argued that there's a political interest in determining climate change causes extreme weather. You don't agree. Um, I mean, you don't agree that it is of political interest. Well, I think it's a political interest. I don't think that setting the answer before you look at the data is ever a good strategy on any any political topic. Um, And if the evidence isn't there, then uh, we need to actually follow the evidence and come up with better arguments for action on climate change. Trying to scare people or to make allegations of linkages that really can't be supported, um, in the short term, that may get some immediate attention. It may create a headline. But in the long term, it undermines the credibility of the entire 
climate science efforts, including areas where the science is much more robust than the disasters climate change linkage. And science will be taken less seriously in future debates. That is the risk, is that if you uh, abuse science, and we saw that in the Bush administration, uh, people aren't going to trust you. And that, that goes for anyone on any side of the political spectrum. Okay, so what do you think scientists should do? I mean, most scientists do their science, don't they? Uh, they don't really think of talking to politicians. How should they engage in this this kind of politicized debate? Yeah, well, let me say one motivation for writing the book was that the IPCC didn't really have a bottom line, clear, concise summary on this topic. And uh, to the IPCC's credit, if you look throughout their reports, they've done a fantastic job on extremes and climate change. Um, but sometimes in public debates, uh, scientists and usually activists uh, get a little forward on their skis, so to speak, on this issue and um, are more willing to, to make strong statements um, that really the IPCC or the science can't support. And it, uh, I, for, for one, would like to see a little bit more leadership from the scientific community saying, look, the data says what the data says. For example, with hurricanes, we can't make that association. Let's recognize what the data says and, and move on to other topics. But I think it's fair to say that your views and writing on this topic hasn't actually made you popular amongst scientists or the media. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it was about it was about the time that Al Gore's movie came out in 2006 um, and soon thereafter that um, a lot of the advocates for action on climate change decided that it would be a good idea to emphasize weather extremes. Um, in my book, I have a graph uh, from the, the New York Times, and I just searched the number of times extreme weather appeared, and the New York Times uh, had an increase by a factor of 10 in less than a couple years. Um, so I think that with the focus uniting advocacy with the claims of extreme weather, um, it makes anyone who says, well, actually the data says something different, uh, potentially not very popular in the, the political debate. And do you think your personalities played into this slightly? I mean, you have a slightly irreverent, cocky style of writing and negotiation. Um, do you think some people have seen the chance to kind of dig their swords in? Oh, sure. There's, there's all sorts of agendas uh, that go on. And, but, you know, the, the public debate over climate change is, is not nearly as nasty as uh, faculty meetings and what academics do behind closed doors. So, so it's OK. OK. <laughs> and, um, you know, so are you going to continue writing and talking about this topic? Um, you know, I, I kind of think I've said my bit with this book, um, and hopefully in the future the IPCC will, will take that extra step to provide a concise summary of what the data says. Um, yeah, I'm not a, going to be you know, proselytizing or continuing to advocate. Uh, I'll, I'll keep a few, few toes in the water, but um, for the most part, this book is, is, is kind of wrapping up in a nice package my views on this topic. Right. Would you do anything differently with your, or your experiences in this field? Would you have change the way you deliver this message, do you think? Well, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, but, uh, you know, the climate debate has, for me, been a great learning experience um, about the world, about our energy system, um, about science, about data. So, um, you know, some of those lessons have come with, a, with some hard knocks, but uh, it's all been worthwhile. So what, in your mind, would be the best outcome for all involved? I think that... Um, it would be great if the scientific community um, stepped up and showed some leadership in the debate by um, holding everyone accountable. Um, there's a lot of attention paid to you know, so-called skeptics and deniers and trying to thrash them over their scientifically inaccurate statements. Um, but people on the other side of the debate whose heart is supposedly in the right place um, get free passes on the science. And while in the short-term politics of the climate change debate that may feel right and, and, and seem appropriate, um, over the long term that undercuts our overall scientific integrity. So I would like to see a commitment to scientific integrity 
independent of the politics of the day. Thank you very much, Roger. That was Roger Pelkey, Jr., an environmental sciences professor at University of Colorado, talking about his new book, The Rightful Place of Science, Disasters and Climate Change. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. The show was produced and engineered by me, Kendra Kruger, the executive producer. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett, Shelley Schlender, Joel Parker, and Jane Palmer. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Bright Archer. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Jane Palmer. And I'm Kendra Kruger.